Heavenly Father, you are the father of fathers, and so we thank you for who you are. You are not a distant God that we have guessed what you are like, and so we celebrate figments of our imagination, but rather you are the God who comes down and says, this is what I'm like, this is my character, and most of all, you sent your glorious son, your exact image that we might see what you're like, and more than that, be adopted as sons and daughters of grace. We can call you father of fathers because you've sent your eternal son to make us sons and make us daughters. And so I pray that as we open your word this morning, as we hear your son preaching to us in the Sermon on the Mount, that you would change us by your spirit, that all the realities of the kingdom that we read about would be actual experiential marks in our own heart because your spirit has taken away hearts of stone and given hearts of flesh and are conforming us into the image of your son and letting him shine through us all the more. So I pray that you would do that this morning, that this would not be another Sunday, this would not be another exercise, this would not be a religious event we attend every week to keep up some sort of moral facade, but rather worshiping the God who gives us breath and life and the God who is our breath and life. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So uh, God has wired different Christians, different people to enjoy things about him differently. There are some uh, people whose affections are stirred on walks in nature, something about the trees and hearing the birds chirp and hearing a bee buzz by just stirs your affections for a creative God, or there might be some of you who just have a gift of just a love for the word. You just can't wait. You, you never feel more drawn in to the love and character of God than when you open up his word. Or some of you, it might be prayer. Some of you, it might be coffee. A lot of you, it's coffee. It's like you grind the beans and you're like, smell the, the riches of your Lord, right? Uh, for me, it has always been sermons. It has always been a sermon has just... Cuts to the heart. When I first became a Christian, this isn't an exaggeration, for about the first year, I listened to around four to five sermons a day, uh, which isn't helpful when you know nothing, because you just pick random people. And let me tell you, on the internet, there are some real bad sermons, and there's some real loud sermons. There's a real screaming, you know, so I, I was a little aggressive, slightly aggressive for, you know, a year for listening to a lot of guys who were like, look at me, you are going to hell now. And then they would just pray and that would be the end of it. And I'm like, yes. Okay, so uh, when I was in Australia, uh, my, my friends would joke, if you want to find Jared, you just listen for Leonard Ravenhill's voice, who's an angry Brit preacher that I was always listening to, right? So something about sermons, even to this day, if I want to understand the scriptures, I'll just go study them. If I want to think uh, you know, and, and understand something about theology more, I'll just go study it. If I want my affection stirred for the Lord, I will listen to a sermon. And today, we're going to begin a study that we will be in until Thanksgiving of the greatest sermon in history. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, what's often called the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in this for a while. I don't think that's a hyperbolic statement to say it's the greatest sermon in history. It's quite, uh, it's objectively true. It's the most studied and most viewed sermon in history. And it's preached not by John Bunyan, not by Billy Graham, not by Martin Lord Jones, but by the Son of the Living God. 
the greatest sermon in the history of the world preached by the only perfect preacher in the history of the world. Every Sunday before I preach, I'm in this corner, or like today in that corner, praying against error that will come out of my mouth because I'm human and everything I could say could possibly be riddled with error. There's only one preacher in the history of the world who's preached errorless sermons and we're about to study him. So today we will begin, we'll see in the first two verses, Jesus prepare to preach this sermon and then we're going to look at the two marks, the two first marks of the people of the kingdom of God. So we'll see today, here's, here's my three things. The king's sermon, Jesus preparing, drawing the crowd, disciples coming, sitting, ready to preach, and then he begins. And we're going to look at the first two verses, those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn. So let's look at this first part. Look at verse one. We'll jump right in. Jesus, seeing the crowd, went up On the mountain and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, this is very obviously setting up the story, but these aren't just throwaway lines. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every scriptural author inspired by the Spirit of God isn't like, what's a good filler sentence for me to get to the good stuff, right? Everything has intentionality behind it, and especially. Matthew, we have looked at every single week. One of the things Matthew wants to do is shine a giant spotlight on the Old Testament and say, here is Jesus being the perfect fulfillment of all of these promises. All the hopes of the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus. So there's two particular things I want you to see in these first two verses. The first is, uh, just look at verse one. Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain. Okay, your antennas should begin to to pop up, right? Is there anybody in the Old Testament who went up on a mountain and then had a message for the people of God that was somewhat important? Moses, there you go. Normally you guys are like, mm, mm, mm. like that's right, Moses. But you're like very articulate this morning, right? Yes, Moses, that's intentional. Matthew wants you tuning in, right? He goes up on a mountain. I've been to this mountain. It's a bit of a hill, okay? So Matthew is, is, is uh, painting the picture here a little bit. Moses, who went up on the mountain, hears from God and comes and delivers the message of what the people of God should be like. Jesus now is going to go up on a mountain and turn and declare the message of the kingdom. What are the kingdom people of God like? Right. Matthew wants you drawn into this. So again, this is no small sermon. The new and better Moses is about to declare what the people of God are going to be like. And then look at verse 2. I wonder if any of you caught this. He opened his mouth and taught, which is, in my opinion, unnecessarily redundant. Couldn't he just say taught? Everyone I've ever been taught by had to open their mouth to do it, right? So a little bit redundant. What's Matthew doing here? He is drawing you in. There's a sense of anticipation here. He opened his mouth. Stop. Okay, what's going to come next? Then he began to teach. Again, drawing you in, almost making you sit up on your seat, saying, this is no small sermon that's about to take place. The sermon of sermons is about to take place. Listen up. Put away your phones. Stop thinking about lunch. The sermon of sermons from the king of kings is about to be declared about what the people of God, you, will be like. The people of the kingdom will be like. So Matthew drawing us in, but then he's also going to show us in these first two verses, how are we meant to hear? 
these next three chapters? How are we meant to listen to the Sermon on the Mount as his disciples? Look at verse one. He goes up on the mountain, sees the crowds. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is super, super important to understand how we are meant to listen to this. So notice, first of all, it's, there, there is a great crowd there that can hear the sermon, but who is the sermon for? The disciples. The disciples come and he taught them, literally instructs them. Up to this point, what have we seen in the preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've seen evangelistic sermons. Repent, the kingdom is here. You, change your life, turn. Now, in this sermon, the word repent will appear exactly zero times. Because these next three chapters are not evangelism. These next three chapters are instructing those who have followed the king. Here's what it looks like to follow King Jesus and to live as people of the kingdom. So the key question for us at the beginning of this, you know, several month journey that we're going to be on is how are we as disciples 2,000 years later meant to listen and read to or listen to and read this sermon and the answer so so important you are meant to listen to this and hear this sermon in light of the king that is speaking and in light of his cross there's a sense in which you listen to the sermon from the other side of the cross this is not not a sermon on kind of general ethics Jesus isn't standing up as kind of the new philosopher and just declaring general things that lead to the good life. And this is not meant to be instructions for you to follow in your own strength. In fact, if you try that, you will be absolutely crushed, which is kind of the point of the sermon. Jesus is going to say things like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom. Let me just tell you, nobody in this room has righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. That's a problem. And in case you're thinking, mine does, he doubles down. Be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. We all fall short of that in my humble opinion, right? He's gonna say things that expose your heart, but don't you dare stop there. If you do, you will be crushed and you'll miss the point of the sermon. The point is to expose what's in your heart so that you look to the one preaching, so that you hear in light of why the Son of the living God has come down and taken on human form and is walking around Galilee and is up on the mountain declaring these things in the first place. To expose your heart, how much you would fail in your own strength, so that you must look to another who does not fail so that you must look to another who is the only one who has never failed. So as we begin this, this week and the next however many weeks until Thanksgiving, do not dare hear and think, I failed at that, and then stop thinking. Let your heart be exposed, let the Spirit convict you, and then look to the Savior who is preaching this. Listen to this from the other side of the cross in light of his life, perfect life, his perfect death, and his perfect resurrection. So he's drawing in the disciples. The king has ascended the mountain. The people of God have gathered beneath the mountain. He's ready for the sermon of sermons. He opens his mouth. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This sermon is going to start with nine blessings, nine declarations of blessed are these people. It's often called the Beatitudes, and almost every scholar of the Sermon on the Mount will say this is the foundation. These nine blessings is the foundation for the whole sermon. So what does this mean? Because a lot of this can, can be a little abstract. What does it mean for us to be blessed? It's actually pretty tricky. The Greek word makarios is, uh, there's not really an English equivalent, which is why translation sometimes can be tricky. Most translators will either say blessed, like uh, your ESV does, or happy, which are both good. Uh, but happy, you know, in our day kind of has uh, sometimes fickle, cheap implications. It's like JV joy. It's very dependent on your emotions. And so it's not a good, uh, it's, it sometimes doesn't stick. Notice, by the way, a fun translation side. It's English, it's your language changing now that makes translating Greek and Hebrew difficult. So if happy were stronger, it wouldn't be a problem, but it's kind of cheap in our day. And then blessed is good, but it's very vague, very generic. Like if I say bless you, do I mean I hope that you have a good day? Am I literally doing something? Am I doing some sort of magic trick that makes your day a little bit better? What does that mean? It's, it's, it's somewhat... Generic, And so one of the translators actually said the best English rendering is the Australian good on you, mate, which is great for me, who's lived in Australia. I know exactly what he means. You guys, you Americans have no clue, right, what that means. Uh, so Australians, a very happy lot. They're, they're lovely people. Uh, when, you, when something good happens to you, so say you get a promotion, that's typically the response. Good on you, mate. It's not a, it's not a like, I hope this thing happens to you. It's your situation is already great, and I'm congratulating you. It's kind of a congratulatory statement. So that is what these kind of blessed statements are. It's not something we hope would happen. Rather, it is a declaration of something that has already happened. It's a congratulation statement. So again, it's not something we hope for, but those in the kingdom, essentially what it's meaning, those in the kingdom are blessed. Why? because they are the privileged recipients of God's divine favor. They live in the smiles of God, if you will. They bask in his beams, and so they are blessed. Their, their circumstances, to use that word, uh, is, are, are blessed. So it's a congratulation. So all of these that we're going to see is saying, because of what God has done, because you have been a recipient of his divine favor, you are blessed, or you're happy in God, as I heard one preacher put it. You're happy in God, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. So with that kind of explained, let's look at verse 3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first mark of kind of the people of the kingdom, the disciples of this king, is that they are poor in spirit, which kind of already shows us this kingdom, this kingdom that is at hand, this kingdom that John the Baptist was preaching about and that Jesus is going around declaring is very, very counter to all the kingdoms of the world. Who in the world considers poverty a blessing? And yet in this kingdom, something's upside down about this where it is actually the poor that are blessed. So what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be blessed? Perhaps we should say what it doesn't mean, that might help clear it up a little bit. Uh, Thomas Watson, who's a Puritan, who I was reading, one of the problems, by the way, of studying the Sermon on the Mount is every Christian in the history of Christianity has studied and published works on the Sermon on the Mount. So my original draft of this sermon was 947 pages. 
with 38,000 quotes. And we would be here till Thanksgiving, but we wouldn't, we'd only be four verses in. So I cut a lot. Uh, but Thomas Watson, I thought I had some good thoughts. He said, what does this not mean? It doesn't mean poor in estate. It doesn't mean financially poor. Notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the poor, and then stop talking. So not, I don't have a whole lot of money poor. It doesn't mean, secondly, poor spirited, meaning greedy or mean, not like, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge before, you know, the ghosts show up, not like a mean, poor spirited guy. And thirdly, he says, it doesn't mean popishly poor, which means you take a vow of poverty and he was a Puritan. And so you got to have a dig at the Catholics in order to get your works published. Uh, so those are the, what it doesn't mean. Now the question is, what does it mean? And Everyone I read agreed, poor in spirit means those who recognize their own spiritual poverty. Those that see and recognize their own spiritual poverty. Those who know there's nothing but sin here. The heart is deceitfully wicked. All my works are filthy rags before an infinitely holy and glorious God. There's no righteousness here, and therefore I must look somewhere else, or rather to someone else, for my righteousness. I think a great picture that Jesus gives us is in Luke 18. Where there's, he tells a, a parable of two men that go to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. And you might know the story. The, the Pharisee goes and prays very publicly. He wants to make sure every, all, all eyes are on him. And he, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other men. I'm not like sinners. And I'm not like this tax collector, certainly. I pray, I fast, I give, right? Very public, very publicly righteous. And Jesus says, that one, that one trusts in himself for his own righteousness. That one looks at his own heart and says, very rich. I am rich in spirit. But there's another man, a tax collector, an outcast, one that people would have spit at as he walked by because he was a traitor who's in the corner and can't even lift his eyes up. Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man, the humble one, he went home justified rather than the other. The one that was poor in spirit, the one that looked here and couldn't even lift his eyes but can only cry, be merciful to me, O God. There's nothing here. There's nothing but poverty here. That is what poor in spirit is. Those that see and recognize their need for mercy, because there's nothing but bankruptcy here. There's no goodness here. There's no righteousness here, only poverty. So here's the question. Why is that guy, why is the poor in spirit blessed? Look at the rest of the verse. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus getting at here? Only, only, only when you see your own spiritual poverty that there's nothing I can trust here. There's nothing I can lay up and say, look, right, good, can I be accepted here? Only then can you turn to another for your goodness and for your righteousness. And here's the reality, everybody's poor in spirit. Everybody is spiritually bankrupt here, but blessed are those who recognize it. It's those who recognize it who will actually turn 
to the only source of righteousness and then actually be brought into the kingdom. Jesus, who says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We might add, nobody comes into the kingdom except through me. And if you think you're healthy, you don't look for a doctor. If you think you're rich, why would you look for a loan? Only those who see, I'm bankrupt, I'm sick. Look for someone to actually heal them. This, there, there's a reason this is the first beatitude, because if you don't get this, if you don't get here, there's nothing. No one is good. No, not one. We might as well just stop talking. This is the entry point, seeing I come with nothing that I can earn my way in. I can't pay my way in. Uh, my wife uh, is Norwegian, and which is why when you talk to her, she doesn't respond. She doesn't know English yet. That's not true. Uh, <laughs> In seminary, I would like let her edit my papers, and English is her third language, and English is my only language, and she's like, this isn't an English sentence, so change all this so you don't fail seminary. And then I got hired here, so you can thank her um, for me passing seminary. Anyway, uh, she has been in the process of becoming, joining the kingdom of America, if you will, really the kingdom of Texas, but the kingdom of America, right? And there is an incredible amount of things required to join this great land. You have to pay money. You have to fill out a ridiculous amount of paperwork. You have to marry someone already in the kingdom. You're welcome, sweetie. Uh, right? You have to take a test, apparently, at the end of this. That'll be fun. Uh, and then, you know, keep your nose clean. Don't get in trouble. There's, you have to earn your way in. And if you fall short, sorry. No entrance here. Not so with the kingdom of God. With the kingdom of God, if you try to earn your way in, that's a direct, instant way of not entering. The only way you can actually get in is when you recognize, I can't earn my way in. I can't earn my way in. There's nothing here that I could lay before God to earn my way in. So you may say, we get it, yes, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. I learned that in Awana's. Let's move on. You acknowledge you're a sinner, right? Hang on a minute. Don't pretend. Don't pretend like your heart doesn't rage against this idea of acknowledging spiritual poverty. And don't pretend like your heart doesn't lustfully long for others to see your own righteousness. Don't pretend. Carl talked, uh, used this as an example this morning. Uh, every marriage counseling I've ever been a part of ever goes like this. My spouse is messed up. If you could just fix them, marriage would be great. And it's crazy. I'll go talk to that spouse, and they say the exact same thing. The finger always goes the other way. We're very, very good at recognizing other people's spiritual poverty. And typically what we think is the answer is, be more like me. Look at me doing my job. You know, why don't you be a Christian as well? Our society does that. The left says if the right just cared about people, we'd be great. The right says if the left would just work hard and use common sense or whatever, we'd all be great. Every bit of it goes their fault, and if they would just be more like me, all our problems would go away. What is that? What is flowing out of your heart as that enters into so many of your conversations throughout the week? Riches here. Other people need to look and see and imitate the riches 
here. And Jesus says, no, no. The people of this kingdom, the people of my kingdom, are the people who see there are no riches here. There's nothing I can lay before a holy God. And they are blessed when they recognize their own poverty. Why? Because only when you see how spiritually bankrupt you are, that you're stuck, that there's no way for you to dig your way out, only then can you say, I need a doctor. I need someone to pay my debt. And only then can you actually find the only source of righteousness that there is. Only then will your eyes look up to the sweet, glorious, loving Savior ready to meet your need. Or to say it another way, the only way to actually become rich, the only way to actually become rich in Christ is to acknowledge your own poverty, to see it, to know it, and to know it deeply. Only then will you become rich in Christ. And this isn't something that only happens at your conversion. It's not like, okay, yes, I hear, you know, Billy Graham preach, I get convicted, I walk the aisle, Jesus come into my heart, and then you go back to being awesome, right? And you start saying, man, all the Muslims, if they would just be like me and accept Jesus. This isn't something that only happens at your conversion. This is a mark of the people of the kingdom. When you come into the kingdom and as you live in the kingdom, you never stop being a sinner saved by a gracious God. He never stops being the source of all your righteousness. He doesn't just give you a little help. He brings you from death to life. All your righteousness is first and always found in him. Look at me. Nothing else is going to protect you from self-righteousness than seeing this. Nothing is going to protect you from the temptation of being, oh, man, why can't they just get it like me? And self-righteousness than this. I just finished uh, uh, the autobiography of John Patton, who's a 19th century Scottish missionary to the island called the New Hebrides, which is an island uh, occupied by cannibals kind of off the coast of Australia. Uh, I'm prone to hyperbolic statements. It is the best book I've ever read. That's hyperbole, but it really is. So buy it uh, and read it. But so he is, he is going and ministering to the most uncivilized people in the world. They're not wearing clothes. They lie all the time. They steal from him all the time. They pretend to become Christians and then will like raid his house and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Not to mention they're cannibals. Uh, if a husband dies, they would strangle their wives so that they can serve them in the afterlife. And he labors there for years and years and years. And every 10 pages or so, 20 pages, as he's just exhausted, as he's being mistreated over and over again, and even those who become Christians are, are weak and quickly will backslide and go back to their old ways. You'll have statements that he would say where he'd say, you know, I, yes, I'm exhausted, but I dare not lose patience with them because someone has never lost patience with me. What kept him year after year after year after year from just being like, these people are too far gone, is being poor in spirit, knowing his own heart, never letting the temptation being whispered into his ear that, what's wrong with these people? Why can't they be more like you? There's nothing that's going to protect you from self-righteousness like seeing that you're poor in spirit. And more importantly, there is nothing that is going to make your Savior more glorious and his grace more beautiful to you than seeing the depths of your own 
spiritual poverty. There's a story in Luke 7. Let's read it. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went uh, into the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. And behold, the woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, the, now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, this man, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him and asked, or Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Of which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. Don't miss this last sentence. He who is forgiven little loves little. The greater you see the debt of your own heart, the more glorious his love will be to you. If you are a little sinner who needs a little bit of help, he will be a little savior unworthy of your worship because you're really worshiping yourself. If you are bankrupt, if you see the depth of the pit and then tell yourself, I haven't begun to glance at the infinite pit before an infinitely holy God, and then you hear his words saying, I've washed you clean. My blood has covered all of those sins. It is finished. Come, know me. He will be infinitely more glorious. A little sinner needs a little savior but he who has forgiven much loves much. How sweet and beautiful is your Savior when you see the depths of your own heart, when you are the poor in spirit. And only then, only when you see your own poverty, can you actually cry out, the Lord is my portion and my cup. I have no good apart from you and your Hands, O oh God, there is fullness of joy in your presence. There is fullness of joy in your right hand, O oh God. There is treasures forevermore. Christ, and Christ alone is my treasure. All my riches are found in him. Only when you see there's nothing here to look to and boast in will you look there and be overwhelmed with exceeding joy. Unsearchable riches are in Christ for you. All the wealth of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. I don't know if he's rich anymore after his divorce, but he's the last rich guy I could think of. All the 
oil money in the Middle East, all the pleasures that the world could combine put together is a filthy penny forgotten on the sidewalk compared to the unsearchable riches of your Savior. And the only way you can see them is if you see there's nothing here you can look at, that he didn't come for the sick, or he didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick, he didn't come for the righteous, he came for the sinner, and he didn't come for the rich, he came for the poor. The people of the kingdom are poor in spirit, but oh, they are so infinitely rich in Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first mark of the people of the kingdom. Is that a mark of your heart? Are you rich in spirit or are you rich in Christ because you see that you're poor in spirit? Next mark. Verse four, you guys doing okay? Okay, I don't really care. I'm gonna keep preaching. Uh, <laughs> Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay, there's a second shocking statement. Blessed are the poor, seems a little weird, counter. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If you have a translation that says happy, happy are those who are not happy, would kind of be the literal translation. So again, what does this mean? Is Jesus just talking about any kind of mourning? There's millions right now mourning the possibility of Roe v. Wade being overturned. There was millions, I would imagine, mourning the abolition of the slave trade, right? Just any kind of mourning? Certainly certainly not. So what does he mean? Uh, and one of the interesting things, every commentator I came across agreed poor in spirit means those who recognize their own spiritual poverty. There was some variety of understanding of what he means here by mourning. And the main three were Mourning means those who mourn their own sin. So it's kind of the next step. You see that you're poor in spirit and then you mourn your own sin. Others said it's those who mourn the sins of the world. The world is wicked and loves sin and so you mourn the sins of the world. Others said you mourn because the world is wicked, therefore it will persecute Christians, persecute those who follow Jesus. And so the question is, which one of these is right? And my answer is yes. Yes. Uh, mourning sin, it has an infinite, sin has an infinite effect on God's perfect creation. Yes, the sin of your own heart. When you see the sin of your own heart, how it's ravaged your own heart and made you inclined to rebel against the things of God. When you see that you're poor in spirit, you mourn. And then next, when you look out beyond yourself and you see our world that calls good evil and evil good, you would mourn. And then that same world that hates you because it hates the things of God when it persecutes you and there's pain as a result of following Jesus, of course you would mourn. I don't see the need to, to cut it too fine here. Just mourning the effects of sin, all of its effects. So those of the kingdom mourn. So why are those who mourn blessed? Why is that a good on you, mate, statement? Keep reading. They will be comforted. Comforted, not with a cheap comfort, not with a blanket when it's cold, or I guess I should say air conditioning when it's 1,000 degrees because we relate more to that, right? Not cheap comfort, the comfort of the king, the comfort of the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Sin is a present reality in our world that's marred God's good creation. What mourning does is acknowledging that reality and acknowledges similar to poor in spirit. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm not God, I can't fix, I can't change people's hearts. And in the morning, it, again, lifts your eyes to the one who can. 
the one who's sovereign over it, the one who entered into history to redeem it. And as a result, you are comforted as your eyes are again raised to the king that is speaking. In the same way that Jesus is the only true source of riches, he's the only true source of comfort. And so in the same way, the only way to become rich in Christ is to see how poor you are. The only way to be comforted in him is to actually mourn, to mourn your own sin. You see your spiritual poverty and you mourn. But again, before we just breeze past this and say, yeah, I don't like sin, think about how much your heart resists and avoids seeing your spiritual poverty and especially mourning it, especially coming to grips with it, especially saying, oh man, I'm that bad. There's no way that can be true. It must be other people's fault, right? If I'm that bad, then I've got some, some really real problems and you constantly, it must be something else. Uh, one of my favorite movies uh, is Shutter Island. I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm worried that you're going to go watch it and it's horrible. Uh, but when I watched it, it was great. And I might have not been a Christian, so if there's bad stuff, just don't watch it. But I'll tell you about it now. Uh, it's got Leonardo DiCaprio in it, so how could it not be great? Uh, and it's a story. It's 10 years old, so this is all spoilers, but it's your fault. Uh, you've had plenty of time. There's, he, he is a... Uh, he's committed this horrible crime. He's, he's uh, killed his wife, actually, and he can't forgive himself. He can't face what he's actually done. And so he invents another self. And so the whole movie takes place on this insane asylum, and he invents this, this new reality, a false reality, where he is this hero. He's actually a U.S. marshal investigating this weird, corrupt, insane asylum. It's not, uh, you know, he's not a patient there. He's now a hero because he can't come to grips with what he's done. But... He's causing problems. He's trained and he's hurting people who like, would speak the truth to him, that he's actually a patient. And so they let him play out his whole scenario because he has to come to grips with reality. He's too dangerous and they're going to lobotomize him if he doesn't snap out of it and come back to reality. And so at the end, they played all this out and it's all just to make him say, hey, just accept what you've done. Accept reality. And so there's a final scene where they're kind of waiting to see if he has and it seems, you know, a little bit before he might be coming to grips with it, and he's sitting with his doctor, who he thinks is his partner, and he says this, you know, this place makes me wonder, what's, what's worse, to live as a monster or to die as a good man? And then he walks off, and they go lobotomize him, and the movie's over, and it's real sad. But what he's saying in that moment is, I would rather live in my delusion than actually face what I'm done, because here, I'm a hero, and it's a movie, but so many of us would rather lie to ourselves and would rather live in a delusion than face our actual sinful hearts, mourn our actual sinful hearts, and repent. And when you do that, you'll have your pride, you'll have your delusion, I guess you'll be superficially happy, you will never have comfort. You will never have comfort if you don't mourn your sin. Again, think of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector, under the illusion that he's righteous, he leaves unjustified. The tax collector, beating his breast, weeping, mourning, goes home justified, goes home comforted in God. Don't rob yourself of the only true source of comfort because you're clinging 
so hard to your pride and you don't want to mourn your sin. Thomas Watson, again, says, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till you come to grips with it, till you see its evil, the evil that isn't external to you, but lives here. Till you mourn that, Christ will not be sweet and there is sweet, infinite comfort in him waiting for you on the other side of the morning. Uh, I have two kids. We've been at the pool a lot because, as I mentioned before, it is 12,000 degrees outside all the time. Uh, and now they're a bit crazy. We would like them to jump in the pool less. But before this crazy phase, you know, all kids, they stand on the edge. The dad stands in the water or the mom and says, come on, jump to me. And they've got to jump that far. And your hands are basically around them before they jump. But to them, you're asking them to leap the Grand Canyon, right? There's a wall between you and them of fear. And you are positive, a billion percent positive. I'm going to catch you. I'm going to spin you around in the water and throw you up in the air. And you're going to laugh. There's nothing but joy in these waters. Jump through the fear. And in the same way, Christ is beckoning See your sin, come to grips with reality, mourn because there is comfort here. There's forgiveness and there's nothing but joy. Jump through the morning. Don't avoid it for the sake of your own pride. The pathway to joyous comfort is through mourning. Now, that's just mourning your sin. Coming to grips again, we said sin has so many effects on creation. That's mourning your sin. What about the world? What about how uh, sin has corrupted our world? They call good, evil, evil, good. What about the persecution that has been guaranteed? We'll see this in a few weeks. Christ promising, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Paul, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. It's coming. It's coming for you. What about comfort in the midst of that mourning, in the midst of that pain? How are we meant to live in the world. And the first thing is to not pretend that we're unaffected. There's this kind of holier-than-thou, sin doesn't mess with me, this world, you know, I'm just waiting for my new home, and you pretend to be a robot. The second thing we don't do is something I think we're, we're very prone to in evangelicalism, which is we find our comfort in running away from pain. The absence of pain is where we find our hope and our comfort, whereas the scriptures would say, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me in the valley, in the midst of it. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Mourn the broken, sinful world and find comfort in the midst of it. Again, Jesus preparing his disciples in the upper room. It's going to get bad they're going to put you out of the synagogue. He knows every one of them is going to die a horrible death, except John, who dies of old age, we think, but he was boiled alive and somehow survives that, so not a great life. Uh, but he knows that, and he's constantly telling him, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending you the helper, or in the old King James, I'm sending you the comforter. Your father is the God of all comforts. Look at Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings 
as we're living in this painful world, as we're mourning this pain, as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. The Spirit is the comfort of your God, is the God of all comforts. And what are Jesus' last words as he sends his disciples out at the end of Matthew? I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Let me just say this. There is no one who can comfort you like your Savior, Jesus Christ. In the midst of horrible pain, friends are helpful. Family is helpful to have them around you. But the most helpful is someone who's gone through similar or worse pain because you know every word of their mouth they felt as deeply as you have. And Jesus Christ is the only one. First of all, he knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to have all of his people desert him in his greatest hour. He knows what it's like to have one of his closest friends deny him. He knows what it's like to have one of his closest friends betray him. He knows what it's like to be spit upon and beaten and falsely accused and uh, condemned for something he is not guilty of. He knows what it's like to be an outcast and to be rejected and to be homeless Hebrews tells us he is tempted in every way that we have been, yet without sin, he's able to sympathize with our weakness. And if that wasn't enough, on the cross, he takes every human pain. He is the one person in the history of the world to whom you can never say, you don't know what I'm going through. Walk a day in my shoes and then tell me what to do. He's the only person you can't say that to. There's no one who can comfort you like Jesus, and he's with you in the midst of the morning. There's not one nanosecond of pain you've ever been through that he is not with you. And he so identifies with the suffering of his people that when Paul is dragging Christians out of their homes and killing them and throwing them in prison, and he comes to him and knocks him off his horse, what does he say? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my people. Not be nicer to my team. Why are you persecuting me? That's who your Savior is. Think about Lazarus dying. Mary and Martha coming up to him, distraught, mourning the death of their brother. What does he say? Does he just say, hey, suck it up. I'm God. Why don't you have faith for two seconds? And this will all work out, okay? You know, before I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Does he just slap it on that? No, what does he do? He weeps. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? He weeps. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is gentle and lowly. That is who your Savior is. In the deepest possible pain, you can mourn and know that your God is with you to comfort you. He is the only source of true comfort. He says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Paul, at the end of 2 Timothy, as he's near the end of his life, is writing to Timothy, his disciple, and says, at my greatest hour of need, all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me. Like Christ in his hour of need, all of his close people had left except one. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And then lastly, we're wrapping up. That's just comfort in this life. Every Christian has the guarantee of eternal comfort. Remember, we talked about these blessings are already and not yet. There's a sense in which we live in the reality now, but there's a sense in which they're coming in the future. You will be eternally comforted. He will wipe away every tear. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 18, uh, the first sermon he ever preached 
It was called, Why Can a Christian Be Happy? Which sounds like a a teenager's uh, sermon. But his outline was brilliant. He said, why can a Christian be happy? Number one, all your bad things will turn out for good. All your good things can never be taken away from you. And the best is yet to come. All your good things can never be taken away from you. Your bad things will turn to good. As Samwise Gamgee says, all that is sad will be made untrue. And the best, the ultimate comfort is yet to come. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. When you see his face, the deepest pain in this life is a drop in the ocean compared to the comfort of eternity. Or as Paul would say, I consider the sufferings of this life unworthy of comparing to the glory that is to come to us. So, Christian, you can mourn. Don't be a robot who pretends they're unaffected. Don't run from pain and put your hope in better circumstances. See your comforting God in the midst of the valley of the shadow. Mourn and know that he is the God of all comforts and he has said, I am with you always. And know in the deepest possible pain, there is a day coming when there will be no more mourning. All your tears will be wiped away and you will hear, enter into my rest. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's the second mark of those in the kingdom. Is it a mark of your heart? Is he your ultimate comfort? Now, as we close, I say that for you to hold on. It's a preach trick. I know some of you are fading. So now I said, as we close, and you're like, oh, there's more. Let me lean up. They teach you that in school. Uh, As we close, I said at the beginning, we need to listen to this from the other side of the cross. Here's the key question. Every one of you is aware right now of your failures and everything we've talked about today. Here's the key question. How are we made the poor in spirit? If we're so prone to promote our own riches, how are we made the poor in spirit? If we're so prone to avoid mourning, how are we made those who mourn? How are we made into the people of the kingdom? And again, look no further than the one speaking. Isaiah 61, in declaring what the Messiah will do when he shows up, look at this. The spirit of the Lord, or spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to who? The poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the blessing of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. How we made the people of the kingdom, how we made poor in spirit, very simple, the eternal God, the infinitely rich God who commands the galaxies, all things were made through him and for him came down and took on poverty 
Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The infinitely rich God became poor, born in a manger, fleeing for his life as a toddler, rejected, was a Nazarene, no form of majesty that we would look on him. He had nowhere to lay his Head and on the cross, he becomes infinitely poor. Every debt of every human being in the history of the world is put on him. There's no one who's been poor like Jesus. The infinite debt you owe from your poor spirit and the infinite debt I know I owe from my poor spirit was put on him, crushed him on the cross so that our debt might be paid. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. He took your debt, he took your poverty so that you might become rich in him. And not only that, he, though he was the happiest person in the history of Eternity, internally with the Father and the Spirit in happy communion with the triune God becomes a man of sorrows and utters the greatest words of mourning on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes on ultimate mourning so that you might be comforted. Again, look no further than the king when you see your poor in spirit and when you mourn. Look to him for your riches Look to him for your comfort and see the glorious Savior that we have. Let me pray. We'll take communion. Father, we love you. We pray that this would settle on our hearts. There's a sense in which uh, one of the key temptations of the enemy is to let unthinkable truths just pass over our heads because we've heard it before or we get it and it's time to move on to something else, or we've got a busy day, or I'm hungry, or all these different things, and and all the while eternal things are being set before us. I pray that as we look at the markers of the people of the kingdom, that they would be markers of our life because we look to the king who became infinitely poor and who mourned that we might become rich in him and we might be comforted. We love you, Father. We pray that you would do this. Only you can do this. We're just playing games. If you're not changing our hearts, the best humans can do is temporarily motivate, but only you can change hearts. So we ask you to send your spirit to change our hearts. And we praise you for your glorious son. We praise you. What a savior we have in him. We thank you for him. And we pray in his holy name. Amen.